Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 16, The Coronation and Marriage of Ivan IV. In last week's episode, we recounted the, at times, horrific childhood of Ivan IV, leading up to the murder of his chief antagonist, Prince Andrei Shuisky. This week, we see the beginning of Ivan's retribution for the years of abuse. The Shuiskis were out of favor, and the Voronstov family was in, which, as we shall find out, could be a dangerous thing. But now, Ivan, still a mere boy of fourteen, needed to let loose. Stories were told of times when he and his friends would run through the streets of Moscow, beating people up, robbing merchants, and generally acting like hooligans. This, after all, was his Moscow, his Russia, and he could do as he pleased and there was no one who would ever again tell him what to do. After a childhood of being abused, it was his time to become the abuser. After turning 15, Ivan was about to head out on his annual pilgrimage to the Troitsa Sergeyevsky Monastery, where he became angry with one Afanasi Bertulin, a son of a well-known noble family, because... The boy supposedly had said some rude words to Ivan. He ordered the young man's tongue cut out as a punishment to fit the crime. As often happened in his reign, Ivan was to feel a sense of guilt as years later he invited Bertulin to join his boyar council. Once at the monastery, Ivan gave, gave numerous gifts of money to the monks and to the monastery as well as supplying them with ample grain for the upcoming winter. Ivan frequently patronized churches and monasteries, probably to atone for his many sins. In his book, Czars, James Duffy calls Ivan's personality Janus-like, two-faced, one an unruly ruffian, and the other a studious youth, well-versed in numerous languages, a writer, musician, and expert horseman. While everyone knew who was the boss, this 15-year-old needed to memorialize his position. A grand ceremony was planned for the Grand Prince, one never seen in all of Russia's history. So on Sunday, January 16, 1547, Ivan climbed the specially built platform and sat on one of two thrones, the other one being reserved for Metropolitan Macarius. Ivan donned the purple robes, reminiscent of the Roman ritual of the donning of the purple and accepted the crown of Vladimir Monomakh, which was supposedly handed down from Byzantine Emperor Constantine Monomachus. Then Ivan gave a speech where he becomes the first Russian leader to formally call himself Tsar. He said, Father, most holy metropolitan, by the will of God, our ancestors, the great princes, have from the earliest times to the present day handed down the Grand Principality to their eldest sons. Thus my father, Grand Prince Vasily Ivanovich of all of Russia, during his lifetime, endowed me with the Grand Principality of Vladimir, and of Moscow, and of Novgorod, and of all Russia, and commanded that I should ascend the Grand Princely throne, and be appointed and crowned with the Tsar's crown, according to our ancient customs. And my father, the Grand Prince, wrote about this in his testament. Therefore, our father, 
thou should bless my ascension to the throne, and pronounce me, Grand Prince and Tsar, crowned by God. Thou shouldest crown me now with the Tsar's crown, according to the ancient ceremonies of the Tsars, and according to God's will, and the blessing of my father, Grand Prince Vasily Ivanovich. This is the seminal transitional moment where the Grand Prince's title was transformed into the ultimate ruler, the Tsar. Ivan's speech, which was written by Metropolitan Macarius, gave him absolute power, but with it, the Metropolitan warned him if he were to enter the kingdom of heaven, he had to understand that the duties of his absolutism was greater than the rights given. Metropolitan Macarius warned Ivan to be obedient to the church and to perform virtuous deeds. Now, Ivan needed to find a princess, a wife, a tsarina, the process of which was well underway before his coronation. He was to pick a Russian girl, unlike his father and grandfather, who chose foreign noblewomen in order to broker alliances with other countries. After months of carefully reviewing all the possible candidates, Ivan found what would be the love of his life, Anastasia Zakharin. She was better known to history as Anastasia Romanov, whose brother was to be the grandfather of one Michael Romanov, the future Tsar who founded the Romanov dynasty, which was to rule Russia until being overthrown in 1917. According to the book Ivan the Terrible by Robert Payne and a relative of the Tsar's family, Nikita Romanov, last names of boyars changed as frequently as the wind. The Romanovs were known in history as the Koshikins, the Yuryevs, as well as the Karin. Their family supposedly arrived from Prussia in the 13th century, with one Andrei Kobyla being a trusted boyar to Grand Prince Simeon of Moscow in 1347. Anastasia's beauty was said to be breathtaking, and she was very sweet-tempered and deeply religious. Her family was very popular with the people, but not with a very high standing, which angered many of the princely families who believed their daughters would have made more appropriate brides. Just three weeks after his ascendancy to the Tsar's throne, Ivan wed his love early on the morning of February 3, 1547. In another grand ceremony, again led by Metropolitan Macarius, a red carpet lined with sable, laid on the floor before Anastasia and Ivan, and headed to the altar to be married. If anyone has ever been to a Russian Orthodox wedding, you would know that it is a lavish and long ceremony. It is likely that the wedding of Ivan and Anastasia was quite different than a modern Orthodox wedding, but it was probably still very elaborate. After having breakfast, Ivan rode on his horse, visiting numerous churches and monasteries, announcing the wedding to all who would hear him. That evening, surrounded by ancient fertility symbols, and what would today seem a bit of a bizarre uh, ritual, Anastasia's younger brother Nikita slept at the side of the bed, while Michael Glinsky, relative of his mother, the master of the horse, Ivan's right-hand man, rode around their bedroom outside with a raised sword. Arrows were shot into each corner of the bedroom, which signified that all enemies of the couple would be held at bay. Festivities went on for days, 
with church bells being rung throughout Russia. Then two weeks later, the newlyweds made a pilgrimage to the Troitsa Sergeyevsky Monastery on foot, some 70 kilometers away. There they lavished gifts on the monks again and spent the first week of Lent attending services every day. People surrounding Ivan thought, with the guidance of Macarius and the calming effect of Anastasia, Ivan would begin to peacefully take care of the running of his country. Ah, but Ivan was young and brash, and with both the grand ceremonies having just ended, his head was filled with grandiose ideas of power. He was, of course, Caesar, absolute ruler of everything around him, and for that, every whim that came to his mind was to be tended to immediately. The Glinsky family ruled for Ivan, as he had really no time to be bothered by the day-to-day -day activities of rulership. Unfortunately for Ivan, they were totally corrupt and were widely hated for their behavior and the fact that they had Lithuanian ancestry. One tale of Ivan's indifference to their actions was when a group of people from Peskov came to Moscow to plead their case against a corrupt appointee of Michael Glinsky, one Prince Pronsky. The assembly met Ivan and his entourage at Ostrovka near Moscow in March of 1547. The elders presented Ivan with their petition, with the belief that he would show his benevolence to them as a truly concerned ruler. Well, they were in for a rude awakening. Instead of greeting the elders, he poured hot wine on them, set their beards on fire, and made the seventy men strip naked and lay down on the snow while he trotted off to see something more exciting than a bunch of old men laying in the snow. This detachment from his people was to ebb and flow throughout his long reign. Another event occurred outside Novgorod soon after. This time a group of fifty musketeers approached him while he was hunting with friends, again with a petition. Being the arrogant kid he was, Ivan refused to talk to them, which angered the men who started throwing things at Ivan and his entourage. A skirmish broke out where about a dozen people were killed, and Ivan was forced to flee for his life. This, of course, infuriated the Tsar, who immediately ordered an investigation. His private secretary, Vasily Nyelev Zakharov, convinced Ivan that four old friends, Ivan Kubensky, the Vorontsov brothers, Fyodor and Vasily, and one of the richest men in all of Russia, Ivan Chlyadin, were behind the attack. The Tsar had Vorontsov and Kubensky executed, and Chlyadin stripped and sent into exile in Belozero, forfeiting all his vast possessions to Ivan. Speculation is that these men were all enemies of the Galinskys, and that the charges were trumped up to get rid of them. But still, Ivan was so quick to dispatch one-time friends without so much as a concern. Spring of 1547, just scant months into his official reign, was to have the first crisis that was to face young Ivan as the city of Moscow, which was experiencing a drought, caught on fire, not once, but twice. The city was a tinderbox, mostly made up of wooden structures, which made the fire spread rapidly. Those structures made out of brick exploded, sending shrapnel into the air, causing more destruction. The people of the time suspected arson and blamed witchcraft aimed specifically at the Glinskys. 
Ivan thought otherwise and had numerous people arrested, tortured to extract confessions, and then executed. The populace began to spread more rumors that bad things were coming, and they were right. On June 21st, 1547, mid-morning, a fire started the Church of the Exaltation of the Cross. Fire spread rapidly throughout the city. Huge walls of fire raced across Moscow due to the strong winds. Ivan's Kremlin Palace caught fire, along with the treasury, stables, and armory, all being destroyed. Many old and revered churches, buildings, and monasteries were turned into ash, along with heavy casualties. The roaring flames and the sight of the black cloud enveloping Moscow stunned Ivan as he watched from his palace on the Sparrow's Hill. With the fire leaving devastation all throughout the city, people with blackened faces wandered to the streets, stunned by the loss of family and all their possessions. The people believed that they were being punished for their sins, as even the relics of the saints went up in smoke. According to the Nikon Chronicle, the fire came to an end at the third hour of the night. God punished us for our sins because that had multiplied, and he did not save the relics of the saints and the vast number of our churches. In a single hour, 1,700 men and women, not counting small children, perished in the houses and gardens. For God, in his just judgment, brings us to repentance through fire and famine and plague and war. The Muscovite people, now thrice stricken with fire, needed a scapegoat, someone to blame for the horrors they endured. The focus of their fury, of course, was to be the Glinsky family. A boyar council met with a large number of the people blaming Ivan's grandmother, Anna Glinskaya, and all of her family as being the culprit, accusing her of being a witch and tearing the hearts out of people in a satanic ritual. Anna and Prince Michael Glinsky were safely out of their city, but Michael's younger brother Yuri was not so lucky. Fueled by their hatred of the Glinskys, a number of the boyars whipped the gathering mob into a frenzy, attacking Yuri, killing him and dragging his body through the streets. Then a rumor was started, no doubt by some of the boyars, that Anna and Michael were hiding in Ivan's Paris, palace excuse me, on Sparrow Hills, where they were passing messages to the Tartars, who were on the verge of attacking Moscow to enslave the population. The mob converged on a frightened Ivan, who through much persuasion convinced the crowd that neither one of the people who they wanted were in the palace. Ivan was absolutely furious that the people would put him in harm's way by passing rumors like they had at his family. He immediately ordered an investigation to find the culprits. A number of boyars even went so far as to say that Ivan was complicit in the fire, something he heatedly denied in a letter to his friend, Prince Andrew Kurbsky. He said, Who would be so mad or ferocious as to destroy his own property out of rage against his own subjects? Then a mystic came forward, named Sylvester, who was to have a profound influence on young Ivan. Being his spiritual guide, Sylvester told Ivan that it was a punishment for God and that he must change his ways and rule honestly and righteously. Sylvester had convinced Ivan that he and he alone knew the answer to a great deal of mysteries. 
Prince Kurbsky believed that S Sylvester had to deceive Ivan in order to bring about a change in the boy. Kurbsky writes, In this way, perhaps did that blessed man deceive Ivan for a good purpose, healing and purifying his soul from leprous sores and restoring his depraved mind, thus leading him along the path of truth. The short-term effect on Ivan was extraordinary, as that part of his reign was considered the good part, one where he ruled his people kindly. For the long term, it sowed seeds of rebellion in Ivan, one that was going to destroy many around him, along with his country. Next week, we will discuss this period of time and follow the young warrior, the Ivan that would lead his people to greatness. Now, for the absolutely busy week, this week in Russian history, August 15th through the 21st. In 1227, Genghis Khan, Khan of the Mongol Empire, the man who sent his troops to devastate Kievan Russia, dies. Eudosha Sreshneva, Tsarina of the first Romanov, Tsar Michael I of Russia, dies. In 1882, Prince Peter Ilyish Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture debuts in Moscow. In 1914, World War I, the Battle of Staluponin. The German army of General Hermann von Francois defeats the Russian force commanded by Pavel Renenkampf near modern-day Nesterov, Russia. In 1920, the Polish-Soviet War, Battle of Warsaw. The Poles defeat the Red Army. This defeat shows how the Soviet army was greatly weakened by the revolution. In 1927, Metropolitan Sergius proclaims the declaration of loyalty of the Russian Orthodox Church to the Soviet state. In 1929, Sergei Diaghilev, the Russian ballet impresario, passes away. In 1914, Leon Trotsky, born Lev, Davidovich Bronstein, Russian revolutionary, dies after being bludgeoned by an assassin. In 1953, the Soviet Union publicly acknowledges that it had tested a hydrogen bomb. In 1960, as part of the Cold War in Moscow, downed American U-2 pilot Francis Gary Powers is sentenced to 10 years imprisonment by the Soviet Union for espionage. 1968. 200,000 Warsaw Pact troops on orders from the Soviet Union, along with 5,000 tanks, get ready to invade Czechoslovakia to end the Prague Spring of political liberalization. And now for a number of pieces of news from 1991. In news that totally stunned the world, a collapse of the Soviet Union occurred with the August coup. Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev is placed under house arrest while on holiday in the town of Foros, Crimea. Also in the collapse of the Soviet Union, more than 100,000 people were rallying outside the Soviet Union's parliament building, protesting the coup aiming to depose Mikhail Gorbachev, and on that same day, Estonia seceded from the Soviet Union, opening the floodgates of secession, which was followed quickly thereafter by Latvia, which declares renewal of its full independence after the occupation of the Soviet Union. And just shortly thereafter, the coup attempt against Gorbachev collapses. In 2005, the first ever joint military exercise between Russia and China, called Peace Mission 2005, 
begins. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please visit the websites at russianrulers.podhouster.com. Remember, no www. Also, markshouse.com. Become a Facebook friend at Russian Rulers History Podcast. Ask a question. Make a suggestion. Leave a comment. And as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.